0: Welcome to our Jackson home. I am joined today by Steve Bowers. He's the, the co-host of Daybreak on 101.5 and the TV media manager at J. A., or just known as a man about town. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us
1: today. It's good to be here. I think we'll see how this goes. Yeah, you're not used to being on I'm this not, side of the mic. I'm not accustomed to being on this side of the microphone. Right?
0: Um, well, that's okay. I think, uh, I think every once in a while the microphone needs to be turned around on people. <laughs> okay. um, so tell us about yourself, Steve. Just kind of introduce yourself to, to the listeners here.
1: I came to Jackson in 1983, uh, working radio with uh, 92 FM. At that time, it was the new 92 FM. Uh, if you want to go back to you know when I was born, I was born in 1949 in Athens, Alabama. Okay. And uh, my ancestors are from Alabama for several generations. Of course, everybody came in from other sections of the country. I, uh, Benny Denton, uh, with the Latter Day Saints, you know they do a lot of family research. And he told me one time I was doing an interview with him that if I knew where my I think it was my grandfather or great-grandfather was buried, what county, that he could find out about my family. We're going into a commercial break, and he's on with a Mormon elder in Atlanta. They got all the computer link up and everything else. So we went to a commercial break, and I said, yeah. I said, my my, uh, great-grandfather was uh, born and raised and died in Limestone County, Alabama. So when we came back from commercial, he said, I've got good news and bad news for you. And I said, okay. And I said, the good news is, he said, well, we have traced your family all the way back to Germany in the 1600s. I said, the bad news is, he said, you're a damn Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, the Obermeyers, they, they trace back to Germany, but the Bowers, they trace back to Suffolk, New York. Hmm. First time they landed in the continental United States, and they went from there into New Jersey and Ohio and all this other stuff. But migrated south, right? <laughs> yeah, I migrated right. south. So that was, the, that was the thing. But yeah. So, so
0: you're originally from Alabama. Right. What, what brought you to Jackson? Freed Hardeman University.
1: Okay. I was a student there in 1968. And graduated from Freed Hartman. It was a junior college at that time with a third-year program in religion. And uh, so I was a major there. Went to Harding to finish a degree uh, and got into church work. Uh, I was there to be a minister. I minored in Greek and never intended to do anything. Obviously, if you major in religion and minor in Greek, you never intend to do anything else in your life.
0: I don't tell people this, (laughs) but I was a youth ministry major at Union. Okay,
1: and so... So it was, it was the same experience. I got out of that business and it was a complicated situation, but it was, you know, we, we got into bus ministry, which is an aggressive evangelistic program, which brings all kinds of new people to church, which was a disruptive experience. It was thrilling for those that that were on the streets that saw the families and situations from which they came. It was a very disturbing experience for those that were in the pews that were not part of that. Mm. And, you know, and so it, it, it uh, it brought about a conflict that I didn't expect. You're young and you're naive and you think everybody should hear this message and they should. Mm-hmm. And church should be an institution that's open to everyone, which it should be. Reality is, it is not. Mm. And so it was that crisis in my life, I think, where I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but I knew I wasn't gonna do that anymore. Mm. Um, and uh, But I had a third-class radio license that I had gotten in high school.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you, I don't you, even know what that would mean.
1: You in those days in the 1960s and up until the early 70s, you had to be licensed to be on radio. You okay. had to have a broadcast license. We
0: might be better off if that
1: was still <laughs> you a third class license, because you were responsible for the meter readings at the station and all that. So you kept up with the technical loss, which is all done automatically today. Mm-hmm. And so there was a skill set. Uh, at one time, I think in the history of that license, you had to know like Morse code and other things to actually okay. be a, a broadcast operator, because you know there was national defense and a lot of yeah. other things, but I you actually had to go to Atlanta. I went to Atlanta. They they, they gave them. Another, I went to Atlanta to take my test to get a third class radio license in elements two and nine or one two and nine I think it was out of this manual to actually be on the air to to be a dish. That came about. I was a senior class officer and our high school had. At one time, a huge blood drive in Decatur, Alabama, for the Red Cross, and so they sent us out as a senior class officer. I was assigned to go to this radio station mm-hmm. to cut a public service spot, and it was a country music station about which I knew nothing in 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, and the man, and they sent me there after five o'clock, so that they, because this was going to be free public service work. Yeah. So there was only one gentleman left at the station other than the the disc jockey that was on the AM and one that was on the FM, and that was Mr. Smith, who was their sales manager. And he got stuck with me. He was gonna do the public service one. So he takes me back to the production room into which I'd never been, and had those Ampex reel-to-reel recorders and all that stuff in those days. And uh, so we got sat down and he said, okay, son, he said, where's your copy? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't know it, what he was talking about, and, yeah. and I said, "Well." And he said, "Well, where's your script? What are you going to say?" And I said, "Well, I thought I would just do this," and uh, and so then he said, "Well, how are you going to time it or whatever?" At that time in broadcast, they worked off of what they consider word appropriate counts for a thirty second or sixty second commercial. Okay. And the copy paper that they used had different spacings if you had Pica type or Elite type, because it was done with manual typewriters. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize I look back on it now, there was a certain precision that they expected as far as pacing and everything else. And then, you know, and the fact that I hadn't done this, yeah. And I said, Well, I said I was just gonna watch my watch for thirty seconds. And uh, so, so that was kind of his reaction. He, yeah. he kind of rolled his eyes. And I know, looking back on it now, what he was thinking: I'm going to be stuck with this kid All till night. midnight yeah. to get this commercial done, and it's free work, and I'll, I'm going to be late for supper. Um, so he said, "Okay, son." He said, "So he said, here's the mic and everything." He said, "You punch this play and record on the Ampex. You know, at the same time. Mm-hmm. If that red light comes on, then it's recording. And then you do whatever." So, so anyway, so he. He left the, the room, and so I punched it, the red light came on. And I you know, watched till it got like right here, and I said, hello, I'm Steve Bowers from Austin High School, and we're having a blood drive. And I went through whatever I went through.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: after 30 seconds, I pushed stop, went and got him, and uh, brought him in, and so he reeled it back, stunned that I was already finished. On one take. Yeah, and rolled it back and played it. I don't know how it sounded, I don't remember any of that. But he said, well, young man, he said, that was good. He said, in fact, no, he said that was very good, and it's a pleasure to meet you. And so we left, and I never expected to see him.
0: Yeah,
1: I uh, never expected to be in at station again, and it was done. Uh, a few weeks later, I was working for my father, who had a service station, uh, back when you had those things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, he got a call from Mr. Blizzard, who was the general manager at that station saying that we're interested in talking to Steve maybe about going to work with us. And he said, I know he works with you, but he said if you could let him go in the afternoons and come up here and watch our people work and then everything, that we'd like to train him and put him to work doing weekends and then do vacation fill-ins this coming mm-hmm. summer because I was a senior in high school at that time. It turned out years later, uh, not years later, uh, weeks later when I got to the station and, and started doing this, um, that Mr. Smith had taken that tape And had played it for everybody at that station Uh saying, Hey, this kid did this in one take, you know, he may have some kind of knack for this, you know, we ought to give him away. And he argued with Mr. Blizzard that, you know, we need somebody filling in on weekends anyway and, you know, doing Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings when nobody else wants to work Mm -hmm. and uh, doing vacation fillings during the summer. And I think this kid deserves a shot. So he became an advocate. for. Yeah.
0: Everybody needs a good advocate.
1: Advocate. Yes. In your life. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and so I did. I, I, I went to work. I started going up in the afternoons. A guy named John Douglas Falk, who at one time managed 103 here, I ran into him years later. Uh, he was on the board, and so I watched him work. It was Country Station back when it was busy. I mean, you you queued the 45s, mm-hmm. and you kept the commercial log to the second. Mm-hmm. You know that you logged in exactly when a, a Kaufman's commercial came on and when it exited. So it was busy. He just took the meter readings, handled the calls. And, and, and it could break down you know, with, you know, with records and all the other stuff. It was, you'd get them on the wrong speed if you played an album and, and everything else. So it was, it was intense work, skilled work that they did. And they did live copy, a lot of live copy in those days too. Uh, and so anyway, I trained with them, went to Atlanta, took the test, got the third class license and went to work with them. And I did it the rest of my senior year at high school on weekends, and then I did summer vacation fill-ins for them and left there never intending to never do that again. Do that again. Yeah. And uh, went on and majored in religion, like I said, minored in Greek and all that stuff. When I, when I decided I was not going to stay in the ministry, I didn't realize that I was walking out on all of my academic work. Yeah. A friend of mine got me an interview in Nashville with South Central Bell. And so I, I got my resume together and went up there. And this lady was very, very gracious, very nice. And she was looking down through my work. My work history was church. Mm-hmm. And my transcript was things like preparation and delivery of sermons, the <laughs> history of Christian doctrine and all this other stuff. Yep. And she said, Mr. Barber, she said, really, she said, I don't see anything in your work history or in your <laughs> academics that's really directly relevant to what we do. Yeah. Of course, you know, they did a lot of different things. But, but then she saw the Greek and she asked me, she said, she said how much Greek did you take? And I said, well, I minored in Greek, undergraduate. And I said, that would have been 18 hours. And I said, I continued to take Greek in graduate school. And I said, I've probably got 30 hours or so of Greek. And she said, man, that is terrific. She said, I can get you an interview at the United Nations. Well, I'm in, I'm in, Greek, okay. Yeah, well, I'm, first of all, I'm in Nashville. And I said, well, what is the connection between the (laughs) telephone company here and the United Nations? And she said, Well, people don't realize this. At that time, the interpreters, and I mean the when they were translating, they did it through phone patches. Interesting. And so she said they buy all of that. They had those, if you look back at those old UN photos, they had those telephone headsets uh-huh. that they would wear if, if somebody was speaking and they were and so anyway, they they used some kind of patching system. Well, they got all of that equipment uh, through through t South Central Bell. Mm-hmm. And so she said, I can't t- guarantee you a job, but I can guarantee you an interview in New York. And then that's when I explained to her that this Greek, kind of Greek. is 2,000 years old. And I said, even if it weren't, I don't speak it. I read it. I can read it, but I don't speak it. Yeah. She took my stuff and put it all back in her folder, handed me this, this folder with my resume. And she said, Mr. Bowers, she said, you have no marketable skills.
0: Yep. So, and this is why I don't <laughs> tell people I was a youth minister. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly,
1: exactly right. So, you know, tail tucked between legs. I moved back, I mean, I went back to, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, uh, and through a contact with a friend, uh, a couple named Bill and Nancy Morrow, uh, and she was from Jackson. she was a butler. They owned the radio station in Bonifantre, and they, they gave me a job there. selling the advertising, doing commercial work. Mm-hmm. And so I started in, in the fall of 76 in radio. And I did it for a long time just until I could figure out what I was going to do with my life. I went to work for Ben Enix in election and got in radio news. And that became the real forte for me was, was being a news guy on radio. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how eventually, because I worked in Adamsville and, and uh, Savannah and, and um, Milan and, and when uh, Jerry Adams and, and uh, Jack Hendrickson came out of Lebanon and bought, they bought the FM in Milan, AM and FM in Mm Milan. I was working another AM that's no longer on the air for a gentleman named Carl Swafford, who I worked for in in Baltimore. Anyway, when they bought that station, they heard me on the air and and gave me a a, a news job. Jack Walker and I were the two first news guys at 92 FM when it came to town in 1983. And and when I say came to town, they couldn't transfer the the operation at that time. The FCC wouldn't let you move out of your city of license. Mm -hmm. But they set up at the Jackson Plaza and broadcast 12 hours a day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Jackson Plaza. And then we would do nights in Milan. And then all the weekends was, were done at Milan. So all the music was duplicated. They had mm-hmm. gone to carts instead of turntables. And so all, all that. And so technically they were doing a remote 12 hours a day all from day, Jackson. Every, yeah. And when you listen to their to – their, uh, and they were ahead of the time because eventually the FCC would totally deregulate. You could move your license yeah. anywhere you wanted to. But but they were skirting the rules at that time, but when we it was the new 92 FM it was WYNU and the new was it was new Mm -hmm. N E W but it was N U Mm -hmm. new 92 FM. Top of the hour, you're listening to WYNU Milan, Jackson's (laughs) new 92 FM. And so to this day this WYNU FM Mm -hmm. Milan. Jackson's whatever you know, but but that was we just paused. This is WYNU FM Milan. Mm-hmm. Jackson's new ninety two FM, and so they stuck that yellow circle logo. And uh, so I came to Jackson in one thousand, nine hundred and eighty three. Did some other work and came back to Jackson in one thousand, nine hundred and ninety one for the third time with uh, with ninety two FM and decided finally because uh, I'd done this for fifteen years just doing it. Finally decided maybe radio was what I was supposed to be doing in my life, <laughs> and that took a while. Yeah. And a lot of evolution. I tried to do other things; it just didn't work out. And so, in 1991, I came back to work in Jackson at 92 FM doing news. They had worked the format down to it was 92 second newscast: news, weather, and sports in 92 seconds, which was skill to write down. Yeah. Uh, the night they they, uh, they let Lester, Lester Beeson go as superintendent. You know, the story the next day was superintendent fired. You want to know more? Read the paper. You know, it was, it was those kind of how do you yeah. get a seven-story count into a 92-second newscast uh-huh. with weather and everything else. Sports. Cardinals won, Braves lost, nothing else matters. You know, that kind of rock yeah. and roll. Because the whole thing was, you know, the rock and roll music is coming back. This news guy is only going to be here for a few seconds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and it was great skilled work. I worked with a lot of good people. Tony Hamilton, Jim Sancho does Elvis Radio now. Stu Smoke came in right at the end. Stu decided probably I was more newsman than they needed at that station. You yeah, know? that yeah.
0: seems like a really short news report New- a yeah, news person yeah. for. And to
1: actually be going out and and gather um, and, yeah, because we covered school board meetings and mm-hmm. went to things. But it, it, by the time they got there, when I started, Jack Walker was the news director, and I was working for Jack back in 83 when they first started. News was very important to them. It was a way of establishing local identity mm. because they knew they were coming in. You know, if they weren't. You know, in those days, radio was WDXI, standalone AM, which had been here for a long time. WTJS and TJS FM, which Jim Hopper owned at that time, and then JAK, uh, J103, to come to town with with Jay Baxter uh, as a kind of a soft rock FM, uh, or maybe it was rock at that time. You know, it was it, it wasn't hard rock. 104 was the hard rock station back in those days. But these guys were coming in from out of town. Mm. And they really wanted a news presence. They wanted us to cover city council and school boards and all that stuff. So we did, even though it was a rock and roll format. And uh, news was very important. It's it's odd to see. When I started working here in 83, every station was just about a standalone. They all had at least a full-time news person.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Kix 96, um, you know, everybody had somebody out doing news. And stations like uh, DXI, where Tom Britt had been for years before he went to Channel 7, they had... Two full-time news people. They had people doing sports. And so uh, if the city commission met, there were multiple radio stations at the same meeting. Jackson Sun at that time had multiple reporters at the same commission meeting because Mayor Conger was over one thing. Mayor uh, Commissioner Langford was over education. Mm-hmm. Um, Commissioner Perrin was over something else. And so, the Jackson Sun had an education reporter. They had a police reporter. They had yeah. specialized reporter. The Commercial Appeal at that time had two full-time reporters living in Jackson. Really. And so it was a totally different media environment. All that's gone away. Yeah. Completely. Uh, and so that's that's how I got to Jackson, mm-hmm. and and how I, I focused on. You know, I want to stay in Jackson, Tennessee. I want to do this work to the best of my ability. And that was 1991 when I really got focused in mm-hmm. this work. And then News Talk came along in 93, and I went to work there in 94. Okay. And I've been doing it ever since. But it was, it was a combination of, you know, my decisions. I was going to be in Jackson. I always liked Jackson. And uh, uh, I interviewed Alan Combs one time uh, when they were doing Hannity and Combs, and he was on, he was on News Talk, uh, had an afternoon show and radio. And I said, well, how did you get started in in this business? And he said, well, I was doing, um," he said, I was doing overnights and weekends at my local radio station. I said, well, that's how most of us get started doing that on shift work. I said, where was the station? He said, Brooklyn. I said, I said, that's not fair.
0: You yeah, know, I yeah. said, yeah, your local
1: station He said, well, yeah, he said, the people with whom I worked are now the head of ABC Entertainment or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. I said, you know, it's I said, yeah, you know, I said, start, start out in Bolivar, Tennessee. I said, you know, I said, when I got to Jackson, I was at a big town. Yeah, that's, I was at a big town. I'd, I'd made the big town.
0: Yeah, that's all perspective.
1: Yeah, it is, it in, is. In, in market size. And so, but uh, it's been a good career. I've enjoyed this work. Yeah. I've enjoyed this city
0: well that's good we enjoy the city too well let's head into a break and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about your um, about interviews and things like that because I know you've had some fun ones So, so between the Tennessee and Mississippi rivers this is our Jackson home And welcome back to R. Jackson Home. I'm here with Steve Bowers, who uh, currently is a co-host of Daybreak on 101.5 and TV and media manager at JA. But he also, you also had your own show on 101.5 for many years, The Afternoon Show. Um, what, uh, So what was having your own show like?
1: Well, I, I enjoy that. I, I've enjoyed the mornings. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I've done it with, uh, when I started at 101 in 1994, and Steve Heyman and I worked that show together, Dave Colvett who passed away a few months ago, worked that show with me. I did it with uh, Keith Sanders and then, and then Greg Wood, so I've, I've had four people, but Greg and I have been doing that show over 20 years, mm-hmm. which is a wake-up show and a fun show and, and you know whatever's going on in the world. Now, if it's something serious, if it's post 9-11, that sets a tone for the mm-hmm. day or if something's mm-hmm. happened locally. But generally, it's 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 two-man and and um, you know just kind of back and forth kind of thing. The afternoon show, which is called Primetime Drive. James Rambo, when when 101 started, was doing a news read show in the afternoon from 5 till 6. And, and James was kind of this classic broadcast voice, very precise with his wording. And he would read news for an hour, national news and state news and whatever. But it set that format in. And so I started 5 to 6, then went 4 to 6, then eventually went 3 to 6 and developed that show. It was so weird coming out of 92 FM, where we were talking about you do 92-second yeah. newscast until suddenly you sit down and it's like, I've got an hour and a half or two hours to fill. What do you do? <laughs> and so I, I did a lot of interviews, um, and, and started developing that into the format. I enjoyed doing interviews mm-hmm. with people, and I found it a way of uh, of exploring topics that you wouldn't get into on on your own, or if you're if you're. Uh, you know Bill Way's been at that station since it started and does a totally phone in show yeah you know and I've always told people I said that's kind of like surfing and I'd rather water ski I'd rather have some kind of mm-hmm. direction you yeah. know to, to say I'm going to now I don't know if I'm talking to you where this interview is necessarily going to go Yeah, but this is what I'm going to do for the next 15 minutes Yeah, and so it's set it in and so it's a, it's a different approach there was a there was a guy named Michael Jackson that was a host, I think out of California, years ago in talk radio. And he did interviews every day. And, and he was carried by one of the talk stations in Memphis, maybe an HBQ or someone. I forget where I heard him. But I liked that. You know, If you're not interested in what he's talking about today, tune in tomorrow. He'll be talking to somebody else. Mm-hmm. But, but I liked that idea of conversation with, with people. Uh, because I think most everyone has something to say if you can get them to say it or find out. what it is. So they have a life story or experience Mm -hmm. if you can get them to share it. And I always enjoyed doing that work. And so that became a a lot of the content Mm -hmm. of that afternoon show. And I I really enjoyed it.
0: Who are some of your favorite interviews that you've
1: gotten to do? I interviewed a lot of different people and it was everything. It's it's amazing. Once I got to doing it, uh, because you're in Jackson, Tennessee, but I developed contact with publishing companies and with agents and other things that would book people once they felt like that, that you could handle it and, and mm-hmm. people would enjoy it. I remember one agent told me, that you know, she said that one of her guests that she was booking said, why am I doing an interview in Jackson, Tennessee? And uh, and she said, well, she said, you'll sell a few books and besides that, you'll really enjoy talking to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and so it became that kind of thing. So you had some advocates. Uh, I think the most poignant interview I ever did, and I will never forget it. I don't know who this lady was. We were doing a show about adoption and, in vitro fertilization and this thing of having children how much it costs you know that adoption could be twenty five thousand dollars, and, and fertility treatments are thousands and thousands of dollars and all this and, and it was in that context of the the challenges that people go through and this woman called and she said well she said i have something i would like to say and it's like and you never know what that yeah. is okay yeah. and it's like okay and she said um She said, I have four children. And she said, and they are not mine, but they didn't cost me a dime. And so, and that's where she left this for a moment. And it was like, okay. It's a curious way to
0: set it up. Yeah,
1: I said, okay, so what is the story here? And she said, all of my children have challenges, physical or mental challenges. And she said, but, she said, they have enhanced my life more than anything ever could have, and I wouldn't take anything for them. Mm. But they didn't cost me anything to adopt. And I said, "So your message is?" And she said, "My message is: if you really want to be a mother, you can be one today." Mm. Mm. And um, I've thought a lot about that because, you know, what I want to adopt is a child that looks like <laughs> looks like me, right? Yeah, <laughs> and all the other stuff. And I thought because most of us. Because we went through the same thing with with, Clay when when you're old and he suddenly started talking about having children. It's like, oh my goodness, what are we thinking about? Uh, I've thought a lot about that. Not everyone could do that, Mm -hmm. obviously. I mean, that's a special calling in this life. But I haven't forgotten the point. Mm. If you really want to be a mother, you can be one today. Mm. There's a child out there that needs a home. And uh, so I thought, obviously, that has lingered with me. 20, 20 something years. I don't know who she was. Never taught her again that I know. Of. And I've wondered how those children are and where she is today. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite interviews was Helen Gurley Brown, Cosmopolitan magazine. For this reason, and I forget why we set the interview up. I think he surely booked that. Um, and I don't know if she was had a book out or something, I forget what it was, but anyway, you know, this Helen Gurley Brown, Cosmopolitan Magazine, main most women's liberal <laughs> stuff in the world. This interview is going pretty well. I mean, you know, we kinda of hit it off and you never know when yeah. you especially when you're talking to people in New York and, and all this other stuff and and like I said in you know, sophisticate and all this. And uh, and so she finally asked, she said, Well, where is where is this radio station? Where are you? And I said, You're not gonna know where I am. I said, I'm I'm in Jackson, Tennessee. And she said I know exactly where Jackson, Tennessee is. And I was sitting there thinking for a moment. I said, if she tells me she's been to the old country store. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I said, how would you know where Jackson, Tennessee is? And she said, I'm from Arkansas. Oh. He says, Helen Gurley Brown, Cosmo Magazine. And I said, well, child, you have covered your tracks well. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so it was just, uh, you know, one of, those, one of those moments. And I thought uh, it turned out to be a, a, a delightful interview. I don't know, I've interviewed a lot of people. Um, Most famous one, person, maybe? You know, she, she would be, you know, I mean, if you get into actresses and actresses, you know, Linda Evans was on Dynasty, you know, which I was okay. thrilled to get that interview. She, she, she did a book and, and performers. When Carl Perkins was ill, um, and we did two specials one when he was in the hospital of, of the people, and then one after he died. And Keith Shirley produced that show. And it was amazing, you know, everybody from Dick Clark to Paul Simon to Tom T. Hall to Willie Nelson to mm. probably did, we were talking with Dolly Parton mm. about Carl because they had co-written some songs and she had recorded Silver and Gold and all. she had been to Jackson to write with him and, and, and so it was mm. an interesting thing. And, um, and then... Keith was handing me notes as we were scheduling the guest. Yeah, I mean, we're on the air, and he would say, "Okay, I've got Willie Nelson on, on line two. You know, so, <laughs> so you're just you're kind of improvising this stuff. It because it, it, it was just an interesting thing that day. It was just this spontaneous. You know, we need to do this show, and and as one thing led to another, well, I'm talking to Dolly Parton, whom, with whom that's the only conversation we ever had with her. And talking to i and everything. And he hands me this note that Chet Atkins is is on hold. And so we conference call that. And I said, well, well, Dolly, you know, Chad Atkins is here. I punched it up. Well, they hadn't talked to each other in a long time. And so he said, well, Dolly, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. I'm just sitting here talking to Steve. (laughs) And so as it turned out, then they talked to each other for a few moments. He's Usually dying. To he to and him. he's dying of cancer, hmm. uh, or he has cancer at that time. He he will die of that. Not not long after that. And it may have been their last conversation. So they kind of caught up for a minute. So it was just those kind of spontaneous moments. Oh,
0: Forced them. Yeah, of it.
1: thing. Yeah, that you know everybody everywhere, and and it was just you know that And that's one of the the highlights I think. Hmm. It also indicated to me how um, far reaching. Carl Perkins' influence was in yeah. contact, because mm-hmm. I, th- I think the reason, and I've never really talked to Keith about that, because he knew some of these people, because he has a background. His, his mother was a talent agent in Nashville, and his father, uh, uh, Dr. Father, uh, uh, Glenn Shirley, was the songwriter that Johnny Cash had got out of Folsom Prison, so Keith knew some people and could open yeah. that door. So Willie knows some people like that he had worked with. Um, but part of it, I think, was just, you know, this is Jackson, Tennessee, this is Carl Perkins' hometown, Carl has died, or Carl's in a hospital, the way we did the first show, is he's in a hospital, and we want to get messages to him from people, and it's like, mm-hmm. hey, Carl, get well, and this is Tom yeah. T. Hall, and all this other stuff, and how did you know Carl, and all that, so it was just that, that combination of place-time situation uh, that worked, and it was, it was a splendid uh, experience, and, and there, were, there were a lot of those. It also, when I first started, interviewed this professor from Columbia, who was communist uh, okay. and he had written a book about economics and all this other stuff and everything. It was interesting. And so Carlton Veers, who is one of the owners of the station, um, called me up after the interview. The only time he'd ever talked to me about an interview. And he said, uh, cause we were just getting started, you know, how's this yeah. gonna go and, and whatever. And uh, <laughs> he said, that guy sounded like a communist. And I said, he was. <laughs> he said, well then what's he doing on, on the radio station? And I said, well, I said, if people have written a book and they have thoughts, I'm going to try to interview them to understand the viewpoint from which they come, mm-hmm. whomever they are. I said, don't worry, I'll have a Christian on tomorrow. You know? and, <laughs> and so I always try to approach it that way mm-hmm. Evan, in, in the sense that if, 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 if it's a book, I may not agree with the viewpoint, and I never try to be caustic with people on mm-hmm. the air. And, you know, sometimes you get into points of conflict, or sometimes you do with callers rarely. Uh, but there were there were some Wait, points. There's people,
0: of who, there's people that call on the 1015. Or... <laughs> yeah, I, didn't,
1: I didn't take as many as, as like I said. I didn't do the show like Bill Wade where you take them all the time, you know, and um, because I wanted things to stay on point. Yeah. And, and we 101 has never had call screeners, which has been part of the magic. Mm. And so people have developed into characters and yeah. characters on the show that are callers that have been out there for years. But it also made me vulnerable. If I'm interviewing a person about this topic, then you know, I want it to stay on point if I can, yeah. and uh, and but, but the uh, but the whole thing about and tiny people that if if they have a viewpoint, I'm not there to correct it. I'm there to try to understand it. Yeah. Some people would take it that you know, okay, you need to take this guy on. He doesn't believe in God or he doesn't believe in Jesus or, or whatever. You need to take him on. And it's like I'm I'm here to understand why mm-hmm. if somebody is in that position or if their politics is different than mine or or whatever. They may be strong environmentalists, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and I've spent the last decade working for an energy company, um, yeah. you know, and so, and so some people just consider that anathema. But I want to understand their viewpoint, and I have found in talking to people that in many, many cases, there are reasons in their lives mm-hmm. that they're where they are. Uh, and I don't walk away agreeing with them, but I do walk away with some better understanding their experience you know Mm -hmm. be they gay be they black be they whatever that Mm -hmm. that you know their experiences that I don't have and I always thought there was value in that just in in hearing that it's missing now because media is now supposed to be an advocacy thing if you talk to media consultants if you want to build a a following you take a defined viewpoint you reinforce that viewpoint every day and you knock down every challenge to it and you, you feed that that machine I could think of out a there. few yeah. news yeah.
0: channels that, that yeah. may do that. Yeah,
1: and so, and it's become, you know, because you may not have a total audience base, but you will have a defined audience base. And if it's large enough, you can market to that base and, and people. Yeah. Um, well, and that's yeah. a
0: change in. Journalism, and it's changed how people get paid. It is a
1: strange change. And there, there is uh, Journalism, I think, generally has disappeared in this. I, I think this political campaign that we're into this year mm-hmm. is a reflection of the fact that news has become what we call news programming has become entertainment programming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it's designed to, it's designed to reinforce opinion and, and all that and not to discuss things, not to analyze things. Yeah. I think we're missing a lot. And I think the media has surrendered the collective voice that it had out there at one time uh and is has opened itself up uh to being john you know conservatives will dismiss a a, a media entity as well oh, that's just liberal media okay and then and then the, o- the other side will do the same thing well that's just conservative talk that doesn't mean anything I, that's just conservative talk is endorsing him and it's it's sad that uh, that there was a, an attempt at one time to try to find what you consider to be true, or at least factual, and 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 it's um, uh, and that's a that's a challenge. I had a student in journalism one time to send me a questionnaire, and it was it was one of these things of like, why can't news organizations just report the facts rather than? And I said, well, let me, and 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 I, I had an opportunity to talk to this student later. I said, let me give you a fact: the building inspector in Jackson retired. That's the fact that's okay. boring okay well it's <laughs> not it's boring it's just that's the truth yeah okay and the city will issue a press release saying that uh that you know steve has decided to pursue opportunities in the private sector and has resigned his position okay what's the possibility that he was asked to leave
0: hmm.
1: what's the possibility that maybe rigid enforcement of building codes had ruffled feathers here is that part of this story okay and, and my, my feeling is, yes, it sh- can be, should be, if you can confirm that, or at yeah. least, right. And so that, but to some that would be okay, well, that's, you know, I, and, and so I don't want to live in a press release world where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, and I don't want to live in a world where it's just immediately based on political viewpoint, somebody's motive is accosted out there. And, uh, and so somewhere. He voted for the other guy. Yeah, you're yeah, right. And so I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm at a loss. I've lived too long. Most of the things, you know, if, if you're born in 1949, most every assumption of life in 1949 is now obsolete and gone away. The, the role of men and women, mm-hmm. black people, white people. I mean, you think about Alabama in 1949 when I was yeah, born. Very okay. different place. Very different place. Uh, the role of women, very different. The expectation of family and, and all this. And our expectation, how we're going to live. I mean, you mm-hmm. look at per capita income in West Tennessee in 1950 and look at it today. Houses we live in, the way we drive, mm-hmm. multiple cars. I mean, we had one car in our family mm-hmm. until I was 16. Yeah. And I was uh, had an opportunity to, to be working. Get one. My mother and I got a driver's license about the same time she lived most of her life mm-hmm. without driving. She died at forty four, and, and didn't get a driver's license until she was well into her thirties. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's like that's just a totally different different yeah. world. And, and and so that's that's what I'm seeing in this journalism world now, and media, and the place of it, uh, and the fact also the advertising base is shifting, and the institutional investment. You know, it costs money to run huge newspapers and everything yeah. else, and they're all going through that that let's do with less yeah. kind of thing, and we will suffer for that, I think. Something will replace it out there. But we'll have to learn, I think, in our own lives, how to evaluate this internet and all that. And, you know, just because it's in print doesn't necessarily mean it's true mm-hmm. wherever it's on, you know. But like I said, we live in a weird world that. You know, I don't believe anything in the New York Times, but you post something on the internet, and I'll quote that as true. <laughs> you know, and so it's like, what happened to us? And I think, I said, and I think this year in our politics, we're paying the price for that, yeah. right? We've got, we've got what we asked for. Absolutely. This is showbiz. This is showbiz.
0: Let's head into our last break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about City of Jackson in okay. particular. So, from our front porch to yours, this is our Jackson home. welcome back to our jackson home i'm i'm joined by steve bowers a man about town (laughs) and uh steve i think you know in this last segment we usually talk about jackson and where jackson's headed and i think you have a pretty unique perspective on that being that you've been involved with jea and you've been involved with the 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 primary news talk station for for a number of years decades now yeah um where what are you excited about in jackson what do you think we can do better where are we going
1: Hmm. i'm excited about what's happened uh, well t- two or three things uh i think one of the best moves i've seen this city make in recent years was the decision to not allow the abandoned lambeth campus set empty and bring mm-hmm. in the, bring the university of memphis to the city i think it was just a stunning move mm-hmm. and um that will pay continued dividends this city needed a state university uh in it, and we didn't we didn't have that as far as a full four year. We had wonderful colleges with Union and Lambeth, in its history was a great college as well, and Lane, uh, and Jackson State. But having a, a university, state university in this city will will pay dividends for a long time to come. I mean, right now we're already a 1,000 students, and there'll be 2,500 And I don't Before know. One, too long, yeah. I, You know, I won't live to see it, but I mean, one of these days, it could be like UTC or something. It could be 10,000 people going to college. here. totally changes the city, totally yeah. saved that section of the city. Yeah. It opened the door, interestingly enough, for someone such as Henry Turley to look at the city and say, I can invest here. Mm. And the Jackson mm. Walk and, and that, that taking that whole area that had sat empty for downtown for so long, and now that there are people there. And, yeah. and I think-
0: And a waiting uh, list to get in yes, the
1: apartments. it. Yes, and, and I, I had an opportunity to interview him on TV6 on, on Dialogue when they were starting that project. And I said, what's different about you? I mean, you know, Henry Turley goes into areas where there's nothing in, in, in bills. I mean, the areas have been abandoned like they did downtown mm-hmm. Memphis. So much of this stuff in downtown Memphis, he did. And he said, well, he said, he said, if something was there before, I go in and say, well, why, what was here before? And why couldn't it be again? And why couldn't there something be here again? Plus there's already infrastructure there. He said, if you don't do this, if you don't come back to the core of your city, then you're having to continually build new infrastructure and you continually get further away and erode the value of what you already have. And, uh, but I think one thing that convinced him to make that investment was the fact that the hospital, city county owned is in the core of this city and is a huge employer. Huge, yeah. The University of Memphis and and Lane, that Lane became the other part of that triangle triangle coming in from downtown, or make that square if you look at downtown, that there were directions to go, there were institutions there of value that you could anchor to or build toward, And, and I think it transforms this city. I'm excited about that. In the same way that, that in the 60s when the interstate came through, the interstate was supposed to bypass us. The idea of the interstate system was that it would go from Memphis to Nashville and would bypass everything in between. And then it would go from Nashville to Chattanooga or Nashville to Knoxville or whatever. You would bypass rural areas, which it did. We just went up and took it over. Yeah. <laughs> you know Jackson didn't play fair. We went up and captured it, and doing so, mm-hmm. we abandoned downtown in, mm-hmm. in many ways. As a, as a retail center, totally abandoned it. Yeah. We went to the mall, and, and, and of course, the Tigert family having that, that property. I mean, there were many things to facilitate that. But now you look at it, we've got an exit at 79, 80, 82, 83, 85, and 87, and we've got commercial development mm-hmm. along all of those at mm-hmm. varying levels out there. So we went up and just, but it changed the city from what it was. And, and we've gone through those quantum shifts. This is the first thing that I've seen in decades coming back into downtown, saying this can be viable and valuable, and I think it will continue to pay dividends for us. It re-centers us. I know when the Urban Planning Institute came in after the 2003 tornadoes, and it's denied by city officials, but I was there and heard it. One of the first questions that they asked was, who decided to put the ballpark at the interstate? Because this one gentleman that was with him said, if you've taken a 10 million dollar project and you've gone to the interstate with it on what basis are you going to ask me as a private developer to put a million dollars into downtown yeah he said it's not going to happen this is the first investment we've seen to that significant degree mm-hmm. in downtown Jackson I think what makes that happen first thing that made that happen was mm-hmm. that the University of Memphis mm-hmm. was, com- was coming or was here uh, yeah. even though at that point it was fledgling 600 students but you know, Henry Turley said, I don't see things at the end, this is the beginning. Yeah. He said people are asking, he said, well, when are you going to fill your apartments up? He said, that's not the objective. That's just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see continued dividends from, from, from that, as, as well as the interstate. I don't know, you, it's still, you know, when you, they start talking about a new arena, and it's one of the first questions, where's it going to be? Yeah, That's the big fight yeah. still in this city. And that's one of the challenges for this city. But I think we've benefited from both, uh, which is is the irony. I'm excited about that. The, the decision that John Williams made as president CEO of the Jackson Utility Division at that time, that this city needed telecom, mm-hmm. was going to have to have it to compete for industry long term. Uh, he looked into the future in a way that most don't. Took a huge political risk mm-hmm. uh, to convince the city to let its utility system become an independent energy authority to get into telecom. Borrowed a ton of money, $60 million to build it, had to borrow additional money to operate it. And we're sitting in a facility that's got gig internet today. And it's just beginning. I mean, it, it, but very few people because uh, I think about that, you know, he could have run the utility division and retired. Yeah, <laughs> you know, would to have take, taken that risk. Yeah, to take that risk and to encourage a city to take that risk. And there were many people opposed to it and said, well, it, you don't have to have it. It's just a fancy way to do cable. It wasn't any of that. And I don't know why he saw that, uh, but he did, that one of these days that communication infrastructure was going to be as necessary as electricity or water or whatever And and, and position. This. this was the first city in Tennessee to have fiber to the home. Yeah. Chattanooga did fiber to the business issue. This city did fiber to the home. Mm-hmm. And uh, we haven't promoted it as aggressively as we should have, mm-hmm. but it's going to continue to pay dividends. Those are the, the, the big things. The thing that I think is a continued challenge is the fact that educationally, we have resegregated ourselves in this community. Mm-hmm. And and the, the school system is is a, not totally, but a predominantly African-American, the city is not predominantly African-American. The county is certainly not predominantly african but the school system is. And, uh, and, and that sets up certain challenge, challenges. Uh, first of all, in building, I think, cohesive public support for mm-hmm. investment in that, uh, and, and then just dealing with the, the fact that, that, uh, that, that this, this is not a community education system as it was, even in the days when it was segregated. It was still Jackson school system or the county school system or, or whatever, and there were challenges there uh but building that cohesion that this is our school system that almost has to be forced because for for many people in this community my son is a student at usj uh uh, and you know this is not our school system you know and and so building that establishing that encouraging the things that that are needed for that system i think are, are going to be one of the challenges out there i am hopeful that uh let me backtrack in, in this sense. You know when we say that all people are created equal in this country, and we've gone through a lot of different evolutions from giving women the right to vote or you know black people the right to use a restroom in a public building or whatever, I mean, we've gone through many, many mm-hmm. things. there fought a civil war over exactly what what did that mean and still wrestle with that. Uh, but just like in education, you know, the reason that we have what was the Kiwanis Center uh, and, and and all these other things is there was a point in time if children had Down syndrome or whatever, they didn't go to school, mm. you know, that those parents were expected to bring. And so we had the Cerebral Palsy Center, we had the Kiwanis Center for Child Development, Johnny Parham and people that were instrumental in that and, and so many people, you shouldn't mention names name because there were so many people, just like Madison Haywood Developmental Services. What do you do with individuals that that have issues of, of retardation and mental challenges you know well they were warehoused or kept isolated or, mm-hmm. or whatever this city did remarkable things with a with a the cerebral palsy center and everything to provide educational opportunity well now we try to do that through public education it doesn't matter what this situation for this child is i don't care where they come from i don't care what their mental challenges are their physical challenges whatever we feel that we have a responsibility to help provide whatever level of education and opportunity for that child that, that we can. I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. It skews your test results. Mm-hmm. Uh, it demands more dollar per student uh, when you deal with the populations that, that, that we deal with in Jackson compared to, to neighboring counties around us because uh, we're, we're making efforts with medically fragile children and everything else. And and um, And I think what could be a point of of pride for us becomes something that that we say. Well, we're just not getting the results that we see in other systems. We're doing a completely different thing in Jackson. Which is an urban population. It's a, it's a larger population than anybody else around us in West Tennessee, uh, and it's not as cohesive. Uh, but I th- I think this this community has always had great spirit. Uh, I think we've gone through a couple of de- of decades of. Um, of retrenching from from that, I think at times, and it that makes me sad. It's it's almost like you know we we built the Omen Arena in the late '60s, and opened the opened the Civic Center in like '73. Built it in '72. I mean, within five years, we had two massive public works projects. Mm-hmm. We're still using those facilities. We haven't maintained them the way we should have, but but we've you know that, that's the city that I wanted to move to. You know, it, it was like Jackson it, in those days is like, if not us, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think we have many remarkable assets and resources. We have a wonderful culture here, a very diverse culture that ought to benefit us. Um, and it's just whether or not we could pull it together.
0: Mm. Well, Steve, that, um, I don't know that anybody would disagree with you on either of those points. Mm. But Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for Helping to make Jackson a better place and choosing to call it home.
1: Well, it's i I've always wanted to be a part of this city I like this city very much. It's been very good to me through some many strains in my life because like I said, I went through pendulum swings I look back on some things now and terribly embarrassed by them to Mm -hmm. to have been there But uh, always been pleased to be a part of Jackson glad to glad to be a Jacksonian and look forward to great things for this city I appreciate this opportunity. You've made it being on the other side of the mic as easy as it could be
0: Today's podcast was hosted by Kevin Adelsberger. Our intro music was performed by Aaron Harden. It was recorded live at The Co. To find out more about The Co., visit their website at www.attheco.com. To find out more about our Jackson home and to read more about how amazing Jackson is, visit rjacksonhome.com. ¶¶